0: Let us draw near biblical worship and the warming of the soul. This is part 10, and I'm continuing from last week. The particular subject, New Testament worship in the 21st century church. To my mind, perhaps the best book in print on the subject of missions is uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. In the first paragraph of the first page of the first chapter, he wrote these words, and they called out to my own heart many, many years ago. Let me read it to you. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend to people what you don't cherish. Missions begins and ends in worship. That's a profound quote for a missionary-minded church like ours. God is so anxious to turn people into worshipers, he actually laid down his life on the cross. That cross, the wall of our sanctuary, it reminds us that God the Son literally dies for the creation of worshipers. Does my voice sound loud to you? Yeah, me too. Can we pull me down? It's echoey and loud. And I'm I'm probably loud enough. We easily fall into the rut of thinking of worship in terms of how we express ourselves to God. And we usually, I, I think maybe mistakenly, think it's a matter of personal choice or temperament I think this makes worship small and anemic because before worship is a matter of our choice or style or taste it's a it's a matter of the goal and desire of God it's at the heart of his almighty mission on earth it's what redemption is all about it's why you have been redeemed and it's your motivation for reaching others Missions matters not just because people are lost. Missions matters because God hungers for more worshipers. Worship is why there is a church on this piece of property instead of a strip mall. Worship is why we're here today. Worship is to the church gathering what food is to the restaurant And this, whether people comprehend it or not, everyone hungers for the presence of God. This is what must be at the core of a living church people meeting God through worship. Here's what this means for everything we do here. It, It means nothing else, in whatever degree of excellence and talent and gifting we can achieve, nothing else will will touch the heart of the hungry. Not not in a way that's more than just a momentary emotional lift. When we lose sight of this, whatever else we accomplish in this place, we, we will lose our way. We will lose our way. So in the next two teachings, this Sunday and next... I want to look at four passages of Scripture. Four snapshots that relate to the subject of worship. So we'll look at one passage this Sunday and we'll look at three more next Sunday. Point number one. Worship and the quenching of thirsty hearts. Here's the text I want to get to. Today we'll be looking at this text, John four nineteen to 24. You know this story, Jesus meets the woman, the woman at the well, they get in conversation, we're kind of jumping into, not quite the middle, but near the beginning of it. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. There's a lot there. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Volumes get written about those two words, spirit and truth. I'm I'm not going to focus on that right now. This part, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's just pray together. Your Word is a good place for us to plant our minds. But only if, but only if what we perceive in our minds um, gets embraced, gets embraced in our hearts and wills. We don't want to just we don't want to just learn truth. We want to savor it. We can do the learning. We desperately need your Holy Spirit to do the savoring. And so come and do that quickening, renewing work as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In one form or another, that passage I just read contains the word worship ten times in five verses. So, so this is a passage, this is a passage about worship. Uh, No subject is given more attention in the record of the conversation between this woman and Jesus. But the conversation doesn't start out about worship, at least not explicitly, not in a way you would notice right away. In verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That ought to be significant to us because the conversation begins with this issue of drinking water. Jesus opening a door into this sinful woman's life, he asks her for a drink for himself of cool, satisfying well water on a hot day. Maybe you grew up in an area where where water didn't come in bottles. I often wonder what Oh, Grandpa Horban, Grandpa Paul Horban, what he would have said when he came over here from Poland if you told him one day people are going to go into stores and take out gobs of money and buy water. They're going to pay for water in bottles. Before that, you remember, you'd play on a hot day somewhere in the backyard, if you can remember it, and you went to the hose, right? You turned on the hose, you let it run for a while till the rust and everything came out of the hose. <laughs> Didn't you ever do that? Then you take the hose, you stick it up to your mouth, and you drink. And we're all here. <laughs> cool, water, on a hot day, the woman, Jesus. And then, and then the conversation turns away from the ordinary water and the, the thirst for water the physical thirst for water. And it, and it turns a corner to other kinds of thirsts. The, the deeper, deepest thirsts that come with life. And, and a kind of living water that you can't get out of that well. It isn't going to be satisfied physically. And you see this change, John 4, 13 to 15 Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water, you see he's making this transition. Be thirsty again. This isn't her first trip to the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever, which is terrible English, but it is a very accurate rendering of of the word sequence in the Greek. Will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. She's still not, she's still not quite on the same page that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw, to draw water. Now, it's from this point that the verses lead into remarks about worship that we read in this same passage at the beginning of this teaching. And we're meant to see a connection. We're, we're meant to see in the design of Jesus and the way he handles this situation, we're meant to see the intentional link in Jesus' mind between true spiritual worship and the satisfying of the deepest thirsts of life. So, so the connection now becomes worship isn't just duty. It isn't just duty. Jesus redirects this woman's thinking. He he ties worship to, like the quenching of a thirst with water on a hot day, he ties worship to, to delight. He ties worship to joy. He ties worship to satisfaction. So in other words, worship and the quenching of our inward thirsts, our deepest inward thirsts. Worship and our inward thirsts aren't two issues. They're they're one issue. They're linked together. That's how this whole incident kind of gets explained as Jesus works this woman through the situation. Because Jesus wants this woman to come into this kind of uh, thirst-quenching, deeply satisfying, life-opening relationship with himself, he immediately puts the spotlight on two hindrances in her life. Two things that can prevent this from happening for her. Surprisingly, in a way that doesn't seem related on the surface, Jesus as he's asked by this woman for water, he answers her by bringing up the issue of her living with someone who isn't her husband. Would you have done that? Like, is that how you start a conversation with someone? Look at John 4, 15 to 18. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come here to draw water. And Jesus says, go. He didn't have to say this. Go get your husband. He knows where this is going. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I I have no husband. He said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. You You have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What, what you have said is true. Notice, the one, the one you now have is not your husband. This is, this is not some um, non-intimate paternal living arrangement with some family member, perhaps to save money. She, she has this. Jesus is very careful in the words he's using. She has someone now the way she had her husband before. And he means for us to see that kind of connection. And she senses he's talking about a sin. But notice something else. Jesus isn't pointing this out just to condemn this woman. Like he still wants to quench the thirst in her heart, but he knows there's only one way to, to get her to that place, one way to reach this goal. She's on a false path, albeit perhaps a religious one, She's on a false path to to the quenching of her deepest thirsts. Her instincts are wrong, and there's only one starting point on the journey home. And that ought to make all of us just kind of go, well, wait a minute. Why do people not find thirst-quenching fulfillment in God? people in this room right now. I'm describing you probably. Why do people not find thirst quenching fulfillment in God? Is it it because they don't go to church? Is it because they don't read their Bibles? Is it because they don't pray? Why do people not find fulfillment in God even while attending church and going through the other uh, expressions of their faith? Why do people go home empty, dry, unsatisfied, why does Jesus Christ, God the Son, who died, rose again, has purchased us in his own blood, made us a kingdom of priests, those are worshipers, unto God, and seated us in heavenly places, why does the overwhelming thrill of knowing Jesus not dominate and rule the thirsty hearts of people? To find the answer, we need to watch Jesus closely. Watch him closely as he reaches, he reaches out to this woman. She asks him for living water. But in spite of what she thinks she wants, she's not ready for living water. She thinks she is. She actually asked Jesus for living water, but she hasn't made room for it yet. She hasn't come to terms with this moral situation, this compromise in her life, this sin. And when the sin is forsaken and brought to Jesus, the great thirst-quencher of the heart will work in her life. Boy, what a lesson here. There are people who, who, to whom Jesus speaks about a summons to deeper contentment and satisfaction, and joy about prizing him above all things and finding the deepest wants of their soul finally touched and warmed. And the reason it doesn't happen for them is because they view some requirement that the Lord, by his spirit, the word, the church, some requirement that the Lord places on their heart, and they think that requirement is going to be too restrictive. And they don't see where Jesus is trying to take them. It happens in all sorts of situations. Jesus, here's a rule. You can take it to the bank. Jesus never, no exceptions, Jesus never deals with our hearts to subtract our joy. Never. Never. Jesus never deals with our hearts to diminish our joy. Though frequently, when he first speaks, our natural instinct is to think, ooh, this is going to pinch a bit. This doesn't seem fair. Even in the convicting times, his plan is only to free us from empty placebos of joy the things that keep us from spotting what's truly crying out in the depths of our heart there's always love in every confrontation every convicting work of the spirit this is preparation for worship jesus jesus is drilling for a spring of living water in this woman's heart and he doesn't want her to settle for less but there's something else The whole purpose of a living encounter with Jesus Christ is the loss of thirst for anything else. This is, this is easily missed. Worship, we all know, has to do with glorifying God. It's expressing honor and adoration to God as the ultimate priority and pleasure of our lives. But God isn't honored or glorified if my heart hungers for anything else as much as it hungers for God. It won't work. In 1830, a man named John Flavel wrote a marvelous little book called Saints Indeed. You can still buy it. I'm not saying you're going to enjoy reading it. Writing was very different in 1830. But listen to these wise old words. Take heed of losing the liveliness and sweetness in your communion with God. The heart is a hungry, restless thing. It will have something to feed upon. If it enjoy nothing truly in God, it will hunt for something else among the creatures and objects of earth and there it will lose itself. That's a good quote. Those are incredibly wise words. If you want a more contemporary feel, you might consider these words of warning about a gradually cooling heart or a distracted heart from C.S. Lewis. In Tape* Letters, he wrote, Take heed of the safest road to hell, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones or signposts, just cooling. So Jesus says this is why he deals with our hearts. It isn't isn't just to cleanse them, but, but, but to somehow simplify them. There's... There's such a steep learning curve in Jesus' creation of worshiping hearts. Uh, Many things may have a place in my life. Most of them are fine, but they're only allowed a certain place, a certain level. Only Jesus can be my thirst. Does that make sense? Only Jesus can be my thirst. John 413 and 14, Jesus said to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again." Of course, wh- I mean, that's true, right? It's kind of obvious. You never just drink water and not need water again." And Jesus, Jesus is pointing to all the things, materially, physically, that we put into our hearts. Like a new car is only exciting for a little while, right? The, the, the things that satisfy us on a material level diminish and have to be replaced. And then he says, but, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, these seem to be strange words a little bit. Learning the meaning of them is part of what's involved in worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. The tricky part of those words, I think, comes in the 14th verse. This promise. Those who come to Jesus will never thirst. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will will never be thirsty forever. Forever. The problem I have with those words, maybe you have the same problem. I have come to Jesus. And I do thirst. Life, life kind of dries us out. Um, I talk to people who come by my office every week, thirsting. People who work with the rest of the staff, thirst. We're a church full of thirsty people. We pray because we thirst. Is there a contradiction here? I don't think there is. So Jesus creates a thirst for God. It's the competing thirsts and hungers that he's come to drown in the living water of his presence. Or look at these words from the Apostle Paul. Here's the same idea in different words. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul knows Christ. He's given his life to Christ. He will die serving Christ. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. Does that sound like a thirsty person to you? It does to me. Straining for what is ahead. I I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's an expression of a thirsty heart. That's not a contented heart. It's a driven heart. It's a heart thirsty for more living water. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said God is easily pleased, but never satisfied. There's always more joy, more expansive walking with God still ahead. I think the last part of Jesus' words in that 14th verse in John 4, they explain the meaning. I think they explain the meaning of never thirsting again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus answers to the drought of my heart the way a spring or a fountain supplies the needs of physical thirst. He, he cares for my thirst by providing living water whenever the thirst comes. And I, and I think this is an important description. Like these words from Jesus are carefully chosen because problems, problems don't disappear for any of us when we grow in Christ. In spite of that chorus we used to sing, troubles vanish. Well, they don't. Troubles don't vanish, even in the presence of the king. But here's what does happen. There is a constant resource. Jesus describes spiritual worship as, as the relationship between the stream and, and the spring that feeds it. As Christians uh, deepen in worship, drawing closer to Jesus, the water bubbles up even in the driest of circumstances. The value of worshiping Jesus is the way it trains the affections of the heart. True worshipers of Jesus, are you growing as a person of worship? Well, it has more to do with just. And this is important, but it has more to do with just your singing and your involvement. We talked about that weeks ago. Participation in worship, expression of the heart, passionate expression of praise and song. We talked about all of that. But more than that, a person who is growing as a person of worship is the kind of person Who gets sick of trying to satisfy his heart with other things? There will be other things, but he recognizes they will—they will, they will never—they will never satisfy the thirst that I feel right here. Whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. true worshipers of Jesus are spoiled from giving devotion to anything else. When do I know Jesus in my experience the way the New Testament and the Spirit offers? Answer, when I can't find deep joy in anything as a replacement for drawing near to the Lord. If my life finds satisfying delight while Christ isn't my consuming passion, then I do not know Christ as he intends to be known. Does that make it clear? This is such a litmus taste for every profession of Christ, my profession of Christ that if you notice it, Jesus expresses it over and over again. It's obviously very important to him. It's important to him that we get the drift of this. So those obvious words we looked at in, in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a, a spring of water. There's something welling up to eternal life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to eternal things. Other things seem unattractive not just forbidden, unattractive. Look at this one, John 6, 35, same idea. Now he's not talking about water at first. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. But here's the same idea, right? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So so he's water that you partake of and you'll never be thirsty again. He's bread that you partake of and you'll never be hungry again. There will be other things that take their attention, their time, but they won't hunger for those things. And he repeats himself, water, bread, the sign of of having partaken of Christ in a living way is, is a lack of thirst or hunger for other things as a root of joy. Worship plays a key role in the shaping of the hungers of our heart. It, 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 it's involved in the hour, hour and a half that we're here, but that's only a tool to help shape. People aren't going to be watered, nourished, satisfied in any deep, lasting way in this church unless we understand what Jesus is saying about living water, bread of life. People, people can sense when the mechanics of something replaces the heart of it. They can sense it. This woman, she's aware of all the proper times and places and the routines, but she knew she wasn't experiencing what Jesus was talking about in her heart. And so are you. When sin or indifference or ignorance of truth or pride or the cares and concerns and schedules of this world and the crowd you're with, when they when they crowd out a simple devotion to Jesus, your heart will feed on something. Remember Flavelle? So Jesus is... Jesus is drawing in this woman's heart. She's not there yet, but Jesus is working on her empty soul. And he still does that. He still calls people to himself. Not, not, he, he, he desires this worship not to soothe some ego of his, but because he knows only passionate worship frees the heart from the disappointment, from the disappointment that comes from devoting a life to anything but himself. He refuses to let that happen. Here's the last verse and we're done. I love this verse. Is it up there somewhere? Read it with me. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Looking to him. Looking to him. It's more than, it it involves this, but it's more than just seeing the squiggles that represent words on a page and knowing how to read them. You you can do that without without looking to him. Looking devotionally, worshipfully, passionately to, to him alone for satisfaction and joy. The writer in the Old Testament says it will never result in shame. Never. No empty promises, no dead ends, no deceptive entanglements. You need to punctuate those words. Those who look to him are radiant. That is what Jesus meant when he said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. Put feet on that idea. Parents, show it to your children. Fathers, reveal this radiance in Christ in your home. Show, how, show what it is to be satisfied in Christ alone. Be very specific. How, how do you demonstrate to your family that everything but Christ leaves you feeling empty inside? How, how do you demonstrate that to your family? Worship is all about demonstrating that while we do many different things, we thirst for nothing but God. And I think without that, without that, all of our all of our words are meaningless. All of our words are meaningless.